Good afternoon, it's Monday the 30th of May 2022. It is nine minutes past one o'clock. Apologies for the technical difficulties. We're back with UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure and uh, Katie Jo Murfin. We also hope to have Mark Anderson with us. Um, we'll see whether the uh, communication line holds up. Now, we thought we'd open today with uh, our take on the reality of the war in Ukraine. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the vast propaganda being pumped out, particularly in the UK, the US and Europe. But uh, here's our take on what's uh, going on. Uh, there is no doubt that Russia is capture, capturing towns and making steady advances against dug-in Ukrainian troops in layered defences. This is a, a key point uh, because Russia is having to fight an extremely difficult battle against troops which have been dug in over a great many years in quite comprehensive layered defence, sometimes with three layers. So the nonsense being pushed out by uh, UK's Ministry of Defence and the US that Russia would have achieved all this in a matter of weeks always was nonsense. The key bit is that Russia is doing the job at a pace which it is uh, happy with. Um, Russia is winning the war, there is no doubt about this because uh, we're starting to see things change very quickly. Uh, if Russia's winning the war, Ukraine is clearly losing the war and it's doing so with huge undeclared casualties and uh, we'll comment on the fact that as far as the Western media is concerned there are no Ukrainian casualties. Uh, this is one of the great lies. Um, Ukraine's frontline army is now starting to crumble and there are few trained Ukrainian reserves and the reserves there are are very uh, stretched across the country uh, so we're now starting to see the beginning of the end. Uh, Ukraine's claim of training a new Ukrainian army is fantasy, uh, made simply made impossible by the time and the effort and the lack of experience which those new troops can possibly have or gain. Uh, the anti-tank missiles, the anti-aircraft missiles, the howitzers, the long-range missile systems and the aircraft that have been provided are being or will be provided to Ukraine will not change the tide of the war. This is too little too late and those weapon systems will be destroyed alongside the others. U.S. and Western money has disappeared into Ukraine's bottomless pit of war losses, corruption and incompetence. Uh, Ukrainian frontline troops are surrendering and or withdrawing, and many of them are making vociferous complaints of betrayal by Zelensky himself and the defense ministry and senior people in the military command structure. Uh, Ukrainian support for Zelensky and his government is waning. Social media has even shown calls for Zelensky to be tried for treason. Uh, so there's no mistaking that there's something beginning to change. And of course, we're seeing that US and EU support in particular is fractured and fading. Uh, so if we pop in the BBC, uh, the BBC, the US and the Western media machine are continuing to deceive both the Ukrainian and the Western public by claiming against all the facts and evidence that Ukraine is winning and will ultimately win. Now, we're just going to show you a, a, a short uh, clip of one of the uh, uh, YouTube analysts looking at the uh, Ukrainian war. There are many channels. I've just chosen this particular clip 
uh, so that you can actually see the sorts of defenses that the Russians are up, up against. Forgot about it as I went through. So it's actually this, this, this entrenchment. This, this is the exact entrenchment that you'll be seeing. So let me show you. So, so this is Tripilia after the capture by the Russian forces. And the reporters, of course, went in and they showed this is you know, how the trench looked like. Uh, not, no, no, don't see this. Um, okay. Then you can see this is the exact one. You can see this uh, uh, new naughty looking sign uh, entrenchment. And then there's this bunker. You can see a uh, reinforced door to this bunker. Uh, concrete built with concrete but uh, the soldier is dead so let's not see it and uh you can see these are all very well uh made entrenchment uh entrench line and you can see this you know, see this this squarish uh tree line uh this is how i actually managed to geolocate this exact location of this entrenchment so i just want to show you how the entrenchment look like so you can see this is actually what you saw just now the the square shape so if we summarize there, apart from the fact the Ukrainian army has always occupied urban areas because it uh, feels that it's got more cap uh, capacity in an urban fight against the Russians, outside the urban areas, this, there is these layered defenses which have been there since many of them well before 2014. So this is not an easy battle for the Russians. And I'll repeat again that claims by the West that they should have been able to do this in a matter of weeks is sheer nonsense. Now, I'm encouraging people to do their own research on the internet. This is another um, channel which does particularly good research with maps and uh, analysis on screen. This is military summary, battlefield analysis, or you could go to the military lab, battlefield analysis. And also it's wise to have a look a of a, at a mixture of the ones we might consider to be leaning to pro-Russian versus the ones that will be leaning to the Ukrainians. However, even if you do look at the Ukrainian sites, the reality is now hitting home that the Russians are clearly winning. Um, well, uh, defense intelligence may have a different uh, narrative to push out because uh, they're saying Russia is, is, has likely suffered devastating losses amongst its mid and junior ranking officers in the conflict. Brigade and battalion commanders likely deploy forwards into harm's way because they're held at an uncompromising level of responsibility for their unit's performance. Similarly, junior officers have had to lead the lowest level tactical actions uh, as the army lacks the cadre of highly trained and empowered non-commissioned officers who fulfill that role in Western forces. Um, are they just being disingenuous? Is this just sheer propaganda or it, is this uh, is this a, a reasonable intelligence update? I, I'm going to say it's a mi <clears throat> excuse me, it's a mixture, Mike, because some of these um, criticisms could be leveled at the uh, certainly at the Soviets, whether it's fair for the Russian Federation. I don't think so, but largely this is uh, this is diversionary argument because, if we look at the battle that's being fought, Western armies have never fought this sort of battle. The Americans haven't, the British haven't, none of the European armies have fought in these circumstances against these numbers. And so 
Uh, my take on defense intelligence is this is propaganda. Uh, okay, uh, but uh, David, uh, let's say welcome to the program and put Ben Wallace on the screen because uh, he is certainly insisting, uh, as is defense intelligence, that the Russian army is exhausted and broken. Uh, but he is saying that the Russian Navy is more of a threat. Yeah, I thought this was a remarkable um, a, a quote uh, from Ben Wallace here. Um, the Russian army is, is exhausted and broken, but is nonetheless making headway in an offensive war against entrenched positions. Um, that doesn't seem credible to me. Um, it's, it's certainly an overstatement. But then it, why would the, he then go to the Russian Navy? The Russian Navy's always been a bit of a Cinderella service. It's always lacked the infrastructure and support um, to, to really be a blue water Navy. Despite its size, um, the Russians have never really made good sailors. And uh, this was never viewed as much of a threat, uh, particularly when, when you compare it to the Western navies, principally the American, but also uh, British, French, uh, and, and other NATO countries. There's a huge disparity in naval power, at least on paper. Why? Why would Mr. Wallace talk about uh, the Russian Navy being more of a threat than the army? Well, I think, David, you, you've got the answer coming up for us in just a couple of minutes when we have a look at what new weapon systems the uh, Russians are now uh, clearly deploying. And uh, we're going to have a little look at what's happened to the US carrier deployments. So we will get to that. But let's have a little look at what uh, the illustrious Boris Johnson has been saying. This is a, a little interview that he did with Bloomberg uh, a couple of days ago, but it's fascinating. Boris Johnson in Great Britain urges further military support for Ukraine as it continues to battle Russian forces. Bloomberg's Kenny, Do Kenny Donaldson sat down with the prime minister to discuss the mounting pressures of war. I think it's very, very important that we do not get into, we do not get lulled because of the incredible heroism of the Ukrainians yeah. in, uh, in pushing the Russians back from the gates of Kiev. Yeah. Uh, because of their, their amazing valor of, of President Zelensky, we should not believe that this problem has gone away. On the contrary, I'm afraid that uh, Putin, at great cost to himself and to, uh, to, to Russian military, is continuing to chew through ground. Uh, in Donbass. He's continuing to make uh, gradual, uh, slow, but I'm afraid palpable progress. And therefore, it is absolutely vital uh, that we continue to support the Ukrainians yeah. uh, militarily. And, and indeed, I think that they, what they need now is the uh, type of uh, rocketry, um, uh, a multiple launch rocket system, MLRS, yes. um, that uh, will enable them to uh, defend themselves against this very brutal Russian artillery okay. and that's where the world needs to needs to go now okay final question and this is about president Zelensky you've, yes you've stood shoulder to shoulder with him but there's certain calls around Europe perhaps from France from Germany to maybe settle with Putin try and try and uh, but I would say to any I, I, to any such uh, 
you know, proponent of, of a deal with Putin. How can you deal? Yeah. How can you deal with a crocodile uh, when it's in the middle of eating your left leg? Uh, you know, what's the, what's the negotiation? Uh, and, and that is what Putin is doing. And any kind of... He will try to freeze the conflict. He will try and call for a ceasefire while he remains in possession of, uh, of substantial parts of, of you, Ukraine. And you say that to Emmanuel Macron? Um, and I, I make that point to all my friends and, uh, and colleagues in the, in the G7 and at NATO. And by the way, everybody gets that. Once, once you go through the logic, you can see that it's very, very difficult you must to, get a, to, to get a negotiated solution. We desperately need, need it to end. Uh, we de the world needs it to end, yeah. but the, the 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 one way that it can end is for Putin to accept that. Uh, uh, let us say that the denazification of Ukraine yeah. has taken place. So, David, I don't know what you felt about that, but um, what an amazing interview. So Russia is weakened and broken, and the Russian armed forces are falling apart, but they're making palpable progress. Uh, Putin is a crocodile. You can't actually talk to him or negotiate because he's a crocodile. Uh, but we must get the weapons in. And yes, we need peace. Um, duplicity by Boris Johnson there, I would have thought. And, and utter incoherence. Because, and this is, this is an example. I mean, we haven't heard much directly from Putin. We always used to comment on the in, in the times before the war, of the, the contrast between the Western leaders' incoherence and Putin's um, accurate analysis of the situation and, and surprisingly open, candid uh, statements when, he, when he's talked to the press, which he did um, infrequently but at great length and in detail. Um, here we see uh, uh, Boris Johnson, um, I think, struggling for a narrative and flipping between a whole lot of contrasting and conflicting ideas and not, not settling on anything coherent. So either he's concealing the truth, which he knows, or he is completely uh, at sea. Yes, well, let's uh, have a look at uh, what the Ukrainians are saying at the moment with respect to weapons. And uh, this is uh, this article here from the New Voice of Ukraine. Uh, website is saying that uh, Ukraine, well, the headline is Ukraine takes delivery of modernized U.S. Paladin mobile howitzers. And uh, this is quoting Alexei Reznikov, uh, who is the Ukrainian defense minister. Uh, and he's saying this is very high quality equipment and supplying it became real as a result of cooperation between several countries. Well, that's all very well. Uh, but the question is, can they use it? He also went on to talk about the Coast Guard in Ukraine. Uh, using Harpoon anti-ship missiles. He said, uh, I'm sure the use of Harpoons and our Neptunes uh, will help us liberate the Black Sea, making it safe again, and so on. So they certainly have, have a view on this, uh, and uh, they're very keen to see the weapons keep rolling in. Um, Liz Truss was uh, in the Czech Republic uh, over the weekend, uh, and she had uh, something to say on the, Russia, on Ukraine, uh, and also on other countries as well. So let's have a listen to this. Well, thank you very much. It's very good to be here in Prague uh, with my friend Jan. We are very close allies and together we have backed Ukraine against the appalling war perpetrated by Vladimir Putin. Together we're fighting Russian and Chinese misinformation. And I want to commend the Czech Republic for the strong stand 
that they have taken against Chinese economic coercion. We must ensure that Taiwan is also able to defend itself. We both agree that NATO needs to step up. We need to do more to protect the edges of Europe, including Moldova and the Balkans, which I visited earlier this week. We also need to strengthen the eastern flank, and we need to make sure that Finland and Sweden are able to join NATO as soon as possible. We need to do more on cyber warfare to protect ourselves against the hybrid threat. And we have to be ready for the long haul in supporting Ukraine, because we are committed to protecting freedom and democracy. Now is not the time to be complacent. There should be no talk of ceasefires or appeasing Putin. We need to make sure that Ukraine wins and that Russia withdraws and that we never see this type of Russian aggression again. Thank you. So she's repeating this uh, appeasement narrative that we talked about on Friday, uh, but she's mentioned Taiwan uh, in particular there. Uh, but it, we're now conflating, David, uh, China and uh, Russia in the same breath. This is another step forward. I just wanted very briefly to talk about the fact that uh, we have been, or the US at least, and, and I'm sure the UK as well, have been pumping weapons uh, into Taiwan for quite some time here. So this is uh, US web, uh, approves $1.8 billion weapons sale to Taiwan. This is from October 2020. Uh, that's uh, on top actually of quite a lot more. Uh, I think it's something like $14 billion or so at the moment of weapon sales into Taiwan. Uh, China slams US-UK over providing Taiwan, Taiwan with weapons uh, is another headline. Here we go. Uh, Taiwan faces delays in US arms deliveries due to Ukraine war is the uh, up-to-date headline on this. So although we're pumping weapons in there, maybe they're a bit delayed. But that's a bit unfortunate because Defence News uh, some time ago in, uh, uh, was talking about uh, the backlog of US defence transfers because of COVID. Um, so there is, there is certainly some uh, problem with this, but uh, nonetheless, uh, US pushing Taiwan toward another weapon to other weapons in secret letters. So uh, this is Politico saying that uh, basically uh, letters that they've seen uh, have, are, are trying to encourage Taiwan to take uh, weapons other than the ones they thought they were getting. Uh, and I suspect that's because of these supply issues or that the US doesn't want to supply them because they're diverting them to the Ukraine in the, in the meantime. But David, the point here is uh, we're, we've been seeing this gradual uh, drawing China into the same types of narratives that we've been hearing about Russia for the last lot of years, uh, particularly since the Integrity Initiative days. Um, and uh, so now we're getting Chinese disinformation as well. Now we've got China running uh, economic wars. Of course, we've had China running cyber wars against us for quite some time. Um, but uh, and, and we've, got to, we've got to start pumping the weapons into the conflict zone, uh, which is going to be Taiwan in the not too distant future. So we're setting this up very nicely for a very similar situation to Ukraine. Yes, and it's, it was a remarkable speech there by Liz Truss. Uh, Chinese economic coercion, I, I must have missed that one because the way she was speaking, that was against Europe, really? I, I thought we were trading quite happily with China on a vast scale. Um, and uh, we've also seen this week uh, the Times of India reporting uh, what they claim to be uh, a recorded, um, a transcript of a recording of uh, the Chinese Politburo planning war on Taiwan. 
So there's certainly uh, a lot of a drumbeat of, uh, uh, of potential conflict uh, surrounding China. Uh, Japan's rearming, uh, or at least considering rearming now as well. So there's a great deal of movement in, in the Far East and uh, in the narrative concerning China. Yeah, and we shouldn't forget that uh, Japan and Taiwan, uh, sorry, J Japan and South Korea very much being encouraged to look towards NATO membership in the not too distant future as well. But coming back to Ukraine then and, and continue with the weapons situation and Russia, um, we've got Euro News here. Um, their headline is Russia tests hypersonic Zircon missile in latest display of military capability. I have to say, looking at the video of this, David, it was impressive. It was indeed. And, and this I'm suggesting is the reason uh, why all of a sudden Ben Wallace is talking about the threat uh, posed by the Russian Navy. Because uh, uh, Euronews continues here, um, describes the, the test, um, and the Defence Ministry said the Admiral Gorskov frigate of the Northern Fleet in the, in the White Sea launched the Zircon cruise missile in the Barents Sea, successfully hitting a practice target in the White Sea a thousand kilometres away. The launch was the latest in a series of tests of Zircon, which is set to enter service later this year. Earlier tests led experts to believe, presumably Western experts, uh, to believe that the range of the rocket was between 250 and 500 kilometres. But the latest test doubled that. And uh, they continue, uh, Russian pr President Vladimir Putin has emphasised that its deployment will significantly boost the capability of Russia's military. Uh, Zircon... Uh, which can purportedly fly at Mach 9, nine times the speed of sound, is intended to arm Russian cruisers, frigates and submarines and be, could be used against both enemy ships and ground targets. Russian officials have boasted about Zircon's capability, saying that it is impossible to intercept with existing anti-missile systems due to the plasma shield it creates while flying, making it practically invisible to active radar systems. Putin, who has sternly warned Western allies against interfering in Ukraine, has said that Russian warships armed with Zircon would allow Russia to strike, quote, decision-making centres within minutes if deployed in neutral waters. So that is um, presumably of great concern if your name is Ben Wallace. Yes, and uh, is it of uh, equal concern if you are uh, the Harry S. Truman, for example? Well, yes, because when traditionally, when these uh, when events and, and trouble happened anywhere in the world, the first thing that uh, the Americans would say are where are the carriers? Because the ultimate expression of military power was the carrier strike group. Um, now, we have a war surrounding the Black Sea, and it's very interesting to see where the carriers are, because they're nowhere near the Black Sea. So here we have the closest one is the Harry S. Truman, uh, and it's in the Bay of Naples. Uh, when I checked this morning, it was um, underway, using its engine, and um, was just just off Naples. And I've, I've watched this for, for some time, and it's been going back and forward between Italy, Sicily, and Tunisia, and not going anywhere uh, east of Malta. Uh, the rest of the carriers, uh, many of them, three of them are in uh, uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, there's one off of San Diego. There's two in Seattle. There's one up near Canada. Uh, there's one in Australia at Brisbane. And there's one in Pearl Harbor. And there's one in Tokyo Bay. Uh, there's no carrier group 
in the Gulf. There's no carrier group in the Indian Ocean. There's no carrier group in the Western Medi in the Eastern Mediterranean, and there's certainly no carrier group in the Black Sea. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, I think your analysis is correct. They're keeping the carriers in what they regard as safe water. And we think back to the earlier comment by Liz Truss, not the one we've had on today, but in previous days where she suggested that the Royal Navy or European navies might like to go into the Black Sea to mix it with the Russians. It shows how completely out of touch she is. Yes, but in that... Uh clip we've just seen, David, she was very much suggesting that we've got to do everything that we can to make sure that uh, Finland joins NATO as quickly as possible, Sweden, of course, as well. Uh, so where does that take us? Well, we've got some uh, a little bit of coverage on Finland now. Um, here we have uh, the uh, Finnish um, uh, foreign ministry uh, talking about uh, this is when they were announcing their intention to join NATO. Uh, the announcement was, by joining NATO, Finland will strengthen its own security. Uh, and that of all of Europe, we're making this historic decision for future generations, they say. So they see this as the, a reaction from Finland to the increased um, risk of Russian aggression. And um, they see NATO as a guarantor of, um, of, of security. Um, now, obviously, they're having difficulty uh, getting into NATO because of objections from the, from Turkey, principally. Uh, but, of course, that's not going to stop the support uh, coming to them. So here we have, um, uh, from a couple of days ago, um, the um, this is a Navy recognition. It's a, it's a, it's a United States Navy-related um, website. Um, U.S. and French navies send warships to Finland amid Ukraine crisis. Um, so information published by the Finnish Navy on the 27th of May said there's two more U.S. and one French warship uh, due to arrive in Helsinki. Um, and this is in addition to uh, a German ship that's already there. U.S. ships are the missile destroyer USS Gravely and, his, and the assault troop carrier USS Gunston Hall. So they are due to be in Helsinki, well, now, actually. So you see here that there is a significant force being uh, deployed to Finland um, and to the Baltic, notwithstanding any niceties about whether or not uh, Finland and Sweden are actually part of NATO. Effectively, they are. Uh, that decision has been made some time ago. We'll come to that shortly. And uh, the commitment for the collective defence of Finland is certainly there. So we see this here again, we go to Ben Wallace. Um, speaking uh, almost a month ago now, Ben Wallace said, it was inconceivable that the UK would not support Finland or Sweden if either were attacked. Um, so this was at a press conference in Finland. And he said, With, without any big formal agreement, we are European countries who share the same values, who have deep, long histories. A significant number of the British population seem to be descended from Vikings anyhow. And isn't it interesting how we're now talking about ethnic um, and, uh, and blood-related links? And this is where we're seeing um, countries, uh, the dividing lines being drawn on, on, on deep and ancient ethnic lines. Um, he continues, uh, we have that cultural link that's not actually what he said, but that's how he described it. I cannot conceive of a time where we would not come to support Finland or Sweden, no matter where they were with the NATO debate and where they are with agreements. 
So it matters not whether there's actually a formal agreement to um, uh, for, for NATO to accept Finland and Sweden in. They have, for all practical purposes, already done so. OK, and you've been looking at the uh, Joint Expeditionary Force uh, alongside that, David. Yes. So an example of this, um, of the fact that it's the, the, the integration of Finland and, and Sweden into NATO is, is already happened, um, is the Joint Expeditionary Force. And we have here the timeline that describes um, how this has been set up. So it started in uh, 2012, not very long ago, um, with the uh, United Kingdom Chiefs of Defence Staff coming up with the idea. It was then launched in September 2014. Uh, it was a NATO initiative, and uh, there were at that point seven nations led by Britain as part of this. And this then moved along by 20. By 2015, we had an operating capability declared. 2017, Sweden and Finland joined. So they are part of the Joint Expeditionary Force with Britain and a whole host of NATO countries. Right? So they've then had exercises, um, several exercises, and then Iceland joined as well. And so all of this is, is fully integrated. And this is a, 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 well, this is a form of extending NATO into non-NATO countries. Um, so we've now got a little description of exactly what this is all about. So this is from the Ministry of Defence. They're talking about the key principles of the Joint Expeditionary Force. So they describe how it's a, an arrangement of 10 countries led by Britain. Uh, they say that as, uh, as benefits its membership, the principal geographical area of interest is the high north, the North Atlantic and the Baltic. Fair enough. They also say uh, that it's not directed towards any particularly any particular country or actor. So we're concentrating these ten countries, looking at the High North, the North Atlantic, and the Baltic, and about the only country in that area that's not already part of the Joint Expeditionary Force is, of course, Russia. But uh, we're not we're not thinking about Russia. We're not directing this against any particular country or actor. So that's clearly not true. Uh, we've got here forces.net. Uh, also look at what is the Joint Expeditionary Force. And they quote Boris Johnson. And again, it's quite strange stuff. So speaking ahead of a planned JEF summit, the Prime Minister said, resilience to Mr Putin's threats must go beyond our, our military footing. Not sure what that means, but clearly it's, it's focused on uh, Russia, not on no one in particular. Boris Johnson added, together we must ensure that we are insulated from Russia's interference and impact on our energy supplies, economy and values. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting threesome. The energy supplies have come from Russia. So how we insulate Russia's interference from our energy supplies, I don't know. Uh, the economy is all linked up, so you can't possibly insulate Russia's effect on the economy because the economy is an integrated whole worldwide. And values... So we're, we're fighting a battle of values with Russia because Russia's not accepting the values of postmodernism. That's quite interesting. He continued, the GEF can act outside of the NATO framework. Oh, sorry, explain Mr. Mr. Monaghan, uh, 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 a gentleman from a, a 
a well-connected think tank who's, who's been pushing these ideas quite heavily. So nations outside of NATO, such as Sweden, presumably are able to call on other GEF members to fulfil security commitments separate to the formal obligations in other alliances. So what that is clearly showing is that the GEF is an extension of NATO in everything but the formal um, uh, signature on a piece of paper. Um, it includes Finland, it includes Sweden, we are committed to the collective defence, it's all a done deal, and uh, formal agreement and formal inclusion into NATO is purely um, a paper uh, exercise um, to confirm something which is already a fact on the ground and a fact in terms of the response that would arise should Russia take any aggressive action against either Sweden or Finland. And David, I just add to that, and of course we see no dialogue in Westminster. Our MPs are not engaged with any of the decisions um, that have brought about this uh, expeditionary force. So uh, people behind the scenes with, uh, it appears, no minutes or notes are committing us to military agreements overseas, no debate in Parliament. Let's move back on to the subject of um, the media and the propaganda, uh, effectively the propaganda war for the West. Um, I selected this uh, little bit of a, an interview by Sky um, so that we can have a little bit of discussion about the types of people who are now in front of the camera talking about the war in Ukraine. Let's have a look at this. Elizabeth, uh, when we look at the bigger picture, it seems like Russia has been making progress however gradual that may be, how would you say the, the pace of the war is changing? As you say, Russia seems to have turned the tide. We all remember the, the early weeks where nothing much was going right for Russia. Now the Russians seem to, uh, well, are clearly focusing their efforts on, on this strip of land here uh, in, uh, in the east of Ukraine, around towns and cities like uh, Lyman and Sever Severodonetsk. Um, but we should also remember that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, President uh, Zelensky has been visiting Kharkiv, which was previously uh, a very fought-over city. That is now safe for him to, enough to safe enough for him to visit. As of course are the western parts of the country where the Russians have retreated. So now they uh, the fighting is very much here in this strip of land. The Russians say they have taken this town of Lyman, uh, which seems very unimportant until you consider that it has uh, it's a railroad hub and it also has sits by a major road uh, and of course is also very close to the city of Severodonetsk which is the last major population center held by the Ukrainians in this strip of land here. Uh, well I've got to say I was absolutely fascinated by that there was more to the particular briefing but I, I looked at the style of it the extremely smart clothes the ladies wearing I thought maybe red and black was slightly inappropriate as uh, what we might call uh, Azov colours, um, very high heels. So this was very slick, uh, but a rather confusing brief because, uh, as we've heard in UK column news today, according to the West, the Russians incompetent, morale is low. Uh, they've been making disastrous decisions, uh, but now she's forced to admit that uh, they're making progress. Uh, but is that a competent uh, analysis of the uh, battlefield and who is the lady in any case? Well, this is the lady 
Elizabeth Raw? Is she independent? Well, we would say, or unbiased, we would say maybe not because she's involved with the American Enterprise Institute, which is uh, absolutely for uh, US policy. Uh, we can get some details of here. Senior fellow at AEI, and she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges such as hybrid and gray zone threats. Currently, she's a columnist with Foreign Policy, where she writes on national security in the globalized economy and is a member of the National Preparedness Commission UK. Well, that's interesting. How did she get on such a position? Well, we don't know. She's also been involved with the Royal United Services Institute. So what is her expertise to comment on the battlefield? Um, well, essentially, she's a journalist and uh, she's now uh, engaged with all these organizations, including the Atlantic Council itself and Control Risks, a global risk consultancy. Um, I'm going to say, is this tenable? How does it come about? Uh, David, you, you are a professional in your own right as an engineer to do what you do. You've had to go through a huge amount of training, exams, and uh, at the end of the day, you've had on-the-job experience in order to be a consulting engineer. How do you go from being a journalist to the fact that you're suddenly able to analyze one of the most uh, complicated uh, combat situations that we've had uh, probably since the Korean War, I would say. It's not impossible. One of the leading strategists in the UK in the early part of the 20th century um, had a background in literature and law. Um, but he, he was involved um, for 20 years in developing strategy, writing about strategy, and training um, the Royal Navy um, officers about strategy, and developing the ideas in an, a huge and ongoing debate. So there was a vast body of work that backed up that man saying things that, that warranted um, you know, people in power and people in authority listening to him. Um, that's not the case here as far as I'm aware, that you've not got anything like this substantial body of work. You've not got uh, someone who has devoted um, as, as much intellectual effort and has led the intellectual effort, but rather someone who's come along and has been put in post and this again begs the question as to as to why why this woman why not somebody else why not someone with a military background why not someone um, with a background in in conflict or in trying to recover nations from conflict it just seems a a, a, a strange choice to me a strange choice well um Certainly, she's got membership of a huge number of organizations. One which I think will stick out to you, Mike, is the Christian Science Monitor. And I think you're going to come on to that in a moment. Uh, but this is the Center for Information Resilience. And uh, if we pop her in there, because you can see this, we learn that the Center for Information Resilience is an independent, nonprofit social enterprise dedicated to countering disinformation. So we're back into exactly the same network that we've commented on before many times. Uh, but uh, 
are these people independent? No, they're not. Uh, this is one of their uh, key agendas, apparently, is anti-fascism. Um, so how this dovetails in with Ukraine, I'm not too sure. It does seem a bit uh, paradoxical, doesn't it? Yes. Well, let's move on to the uh, Christian Science Monitor because they carried this article, Why American Veterans Are Dropping Everything to Train Ukrainians. And it really is a very special article. If you go and read this, it's very much about persuading more and more people to get involved in the Ukrainian war. Uh, if you're ex-military, if you're a veteran, get over there, get your job done. And this is what they say uh, in their uh, little section here, why we wrote this article, what moves people from passive sympathy to active participation. American military veterans who got off their couches to help in this war cite Ukrainian resolve and the conflict's moral clarity. So this is the position that the Christian Science Monitor has taken. They are now inciting war, inciting people to take part in war. And this doesn't, to me, seem like it fits with what they say that they're all about. Um, but anyway, uh, we have a couple of short video clips here that uh, many people might have seen or some people will see anyway. The first one is showing uh, some UK troops uh, heading over to Ukraine. My name's Jax. I'm from uh, England. And basically, we're here to uh, help stop the invasion of Ukraine. Hopefully, you know, we'll win. Oh, yeah. I do that with plates on CNN. Yeah. Walk into the board parts. Most of us are ex military, so we're all uh, very well trained. And the motivation is obviously the war crimes that are being committed shouldn't be committed, you know. It's, Bombing civilian targets, executing civilians, raping females, they, it, it shouldn't happen and it needs to be stopped. Long live Ukraine. So the question in my mind is, where did he get this idea that that was what was going on? Well, that's Liz Truss certainly has some uh, something to say about that because, of course, she made the statement originally that... Uh, it's very much in favor of her. At least she was very much in favor of them going over to do to get involved in this conflict. Uh, but of course, the media and the Christian Science Monitor, but media widely have been encouraging this as well. Um, so then, this little piece of video appeared just before the weekend. Brian, you go, 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 go. towards us. Um, so it turned out that uh, the one of the participants in that little video clip was, uh, well, you could clearly hear they were all speaking English, but one was uh, a guy called Ben Grant. 
he is the son of the Maidstone and the Weald MP, Helen Grant, uh, and he's over there fighting. He's, uh, the media coverage that I've seen on this say that, uh, says that he didn't tell her that uh, he was going, uh, but nonetheless, uh, he's there fighting, and uh, that, that, there were some people injured in that particular uh, uh, exercise, and, and he was helping to, to save someone's life which is a very brave act, of course, but the point is, why is he there in the first place? Uh, also, you know, he is the son of an, an MP. You might think that he would be better uh, informed about what's going on, but perhaps not. So uh, let's uh, put him on screen here. Uh, Maidstone and Weald MP Hel Helen Grant's son, Ben Grant, filmed destroying Russian armoured vehicle. Well, I'm not certain that they actually achieved that goal, but nonetheless, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are, Brian, on this. Well, a group of extremely naive young men who clearly believe the propaganda, of course, pouring out of TVs and radios in UK by the BBC. They listen to it. They believe it. I've, I have withheld some clips which we could have shown on the news today because the reality of the fighting is utterly brutal. And those young men have no idea of the combat that they're going into. Because I repeat this, that even if you're ex-British military or ex-British army, you will have had no experience of this type of, of warfare. And uh, just naive, I can't think of any other way of describing it. And Liz Truss has encouraged these young men to go and give up their lives. Um, so, you know, Liz Truss has, the media has, the media is inciting this. Uh, but let's bring Le Monde on screen here and uh, do a quick translation of the headline. Tortured Russian prisoners videos verified by Le Monde implicate a battalion of Ukrainian uh, volunteers. Uh, and the key point here is that uh, the torture narrative, uh, this was the um, video clip that was seen of the Ukrainians, the Azov brigades, uh, shooting some Russians in the legs uh, as they were being taken off a bus. Uh, these were Russian prisoners of war and there were other Russians already having been shot in the legs and worse happened to them uh, lying on the ground with plastic bags over the head and this sort of thing. At the time, this was called Russian disinformation, including by Le Monde. Uh, and the person who uh, blew the whistle on that event was a guy called Adrian Bouquet. Bouquet. So if we just put that back on screen for a second. So he's a former French soldier uh, who traveled to Ukraine uh, as a medic. Uh, and he got involved on the Ukrainian side. He was heavily criticized at the time for his criticism of that video clip. Um, and uh, so anyway, Le Monde now having to admit, and it's well done to them, I suppose, in a sense, because they've gone and they've done the verification of it. So they have now had to admit that that video was genuine and that these were the Nazi Azov brigades that were, were doing this. But uh, Bouquet said, uh, I saw captured Russian soldiers who'd already been really roughed up and who were tied up, we were in a sort of hangar and the captured Russian soldiers were arriving in little vans in groups of three or four each time they made the soldiers get out of the vans and the Azov fighters would ask, who are the officers, who are the officers? Uh, and the officers would get a bullet in the head. Uh, and uh, then he said, uh, he was talking about Americans, uh, US journalists who were reporting false, uh, reports were falsified, or sorry, they were falsified uh, of the events that he had seen. These Americans were shooting videos and saying these are Russian bombardments and it's landing in a park and it's unacceptable. So he's talking about other issues here. Uh, I went to see them and asked, why are you saying that? And they said, oh, don't worry, it makes a good image. 
uh, do you know what these bombings really were? In fact, uh, they were Russian. Uh, they were a Russian target and a team of Azov fighters I was with who, was, who were inputting settings on a little mortar to fire off bombs uh, and they were put in the wrong uh, range. So the key point here is, David, that um, the media lying all the way through this uh, to such a great extent, uh, claiming that things which are clearly true are in fact disinformation and Liz Truss doing the same because it's all about Russian and Chinese disinformation. And that's what's mainly driving uh, Western participation in this in this conflict. Yes, and you heard it directly from the young men in military uniform on the train going to Ukraine. They're going there because they believe that the Russians are committing war crimes and they need to be stopped. Had the a more accurate view of what's actually happening there, would they have gone at all? I think not. I think that's absolutely right. So let's just look at how the BBC does things. This is a capture of the main BBC page. Um, live arming Ukraine is dangerous. Putin warns Western leaders. And then we're into a, a, a scrolling report of events in, in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, this is the uh, journalist who's editing it, Jeremy Gagahan. And if we have a look at uh, the report itself. I've just chosen this out of it. Um, Russia scraps age limit for new troops. This gives you the impression that the Russians are having trouble providing the number of troops. But of course, they're only using somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of their overall troops. But in this, I this one caught my eye. Ukrainian and Western military experts say Russia has suffered heavy losses in the war, about 30,000 killed, according to Ukraine while the UK government estimates the toll at about 15,000. Soviet losses in nine years of war in Afghanistan were about 15,000. Russian gave a total of 1,351 dead on the 25th of March, which has not been updated. Uh, we noticed that, of course, there was absolutely no mention of Ukrainian casualties. So who's the man editing it? Well, if you go and have a look at him, and I suggest to our audience you do, you will find that this man, it's, I'm going to say it's almost childish. It's probably a little bit unfair to say all of his uh, tweeting is childish, but it's very simple social thing. He's, he's got under his head, I love great food, sport, music, and warm places by the sea. And yet this is the man that the BBC has got editing this very vital page, which is sending young soldiers, ex-soldiers off to their deaths. So you can have a look at uh, LinkedIn profile and you will see that overwhelmingly his experience is uh, social media. Well, if we come back to the article itself, uh, one of the embedded uh, click on links is this one here, the fallen Russian soldiers left behind in Ukraine. I have to say, I think this is one of the most disgusting pieces of propaganda by the BBC because they, they're not happy with Russians dying. They've got to use the bodies as propaganda. So let's have a look at this uh, short uh, uh, BBC film clip. And um, there isn't a lot of uh, dialogue in it, so I'll make comments afterwards, but it should run on screen. And it's uh, about forensic recovery of Russian bodies around Kiev. So we're watching people digging in the ground and uh, 
And then we've got uh, a group of four men in their protective suits and gloves. And they're giving a commentary to a BBC reporter um, that the Russians treat their people as rubbish, as cannon fodder. They just throw their soldiers away. Uh, this is describing bodies, fallen soldiers that have clearly been buried on the battlefield. Uh, but it takes the wonderful Ukrainians to put them in uh, a refrigerated train. And uh, then the final stab is that Russia shows no interest in taking them back. So I, I regard this as utterly obscene propaganda by the BBC. And you think of the offence and the effect on Russian families. Uh, but of course, the meat of this is that there's absolutely no commentary on what happens when Ukrainians are killed on the battlefield. Uh, the BBC either ignores it or uh, takes material out of this sort of report. This is Ukraine Crisis Media Center. And if we look down at the bottom, it says removal of dead heroes from Azovstal is underway. I hope that in the near future, their families and entire Ukraine will be able to bury their soldiers with honor. Well, of course, Ukraine never did remove any dead bodies from Azovstal because it was down to the Russians to do that. And there are some truly disturbing pictures on the Internet of the Russians having to deal with all of the dead bodies of Ukrainian soldiers in Azovstal simply dumped into large piles. Of course, the BBC doesn't want to cover that. Um, OK, we'll just end this segment then uh, with this, David, because on Friday, Patrick was talking about the uh, translations uh, of uh, certain terms from what the propaganda says to what the reality is. Uh, and it seems the Ministry of Defence has felt the need to uh, do the same. Well, I don't know if they were watching, but uh, over the weekend, up came the MOD on Twitter. Russian state systematically seeks to legitimize the war in Ukraine through distorting the narrative by accusing others of the very actions they carry out. Um, so they're, they're suggesting it's a, it's a global uh, tactic. So they've got two examples here, civilian atrocities, right? So they're, they're saying the Kremlin has accused Ukraine of attacking the staging attacks on civilians, um, yet the UK intelligence uh, uh, reveals in, uh, intentional bombing of critical and civilian infrastructure in Mariupol. Um, we've reported both on um, uh, the uh, Bukha massacre and on the general conduct of the Russians as they've advanced. Um, it's, the Bukha massacre was pinned on the Russians, but it seems clear that it was in fact Ukrainian police that, that carried it out. And uh, the general conduct of the Russians as, as they've advanced has minimized to a quite extraordinary degree the number of civilian casualties. Um, so that doesn't seem to be true from the MOD. And we have uh, a second example here. No, um, we've, we've moved on from is, it, David. So, um, so just, just describe it if you could. Yeah, sorry, which is uh, press censorship. So the Kremlin accuses nations who condemn the war of silencing the Russian media. Well, we've done that. That's not. That's not debatable. And they say, yeah, but days after ordering the invasion, Putin enforced laws censoring press freedom. Yes, and he did. But the issue is, of course, that for two years through the COVID crisis, we've been censoring press freedom and deplatforming anyone who told the truth about vaccine damage or the actual risks of the, uh, of, of the virus. So the British government, I'm sorry, 
uh, cannot be making those statements without first putting their own house in order. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay, let's move on then. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then uh, please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, uh, or you could uh, pick something up from the UK Column shop. Uh, but uh, in any case, please do share any material you find on the various platforms. Okay. Well, we're delighted to say that uh, Mark Anderson has uh, agreed to join us today just to give us a, a brief update on the terrible sco uh, school shooting in America. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Um, what have you been discovering about reports uh, to do with the school? Well, since I reported on this last, this past Thursday, where I gave an initial report, the main thing is that the police are now under extreme scrutiny. Um, the Texas Rangers, as of this past Thursday, the day I was on UK column, were getting ready to investigate uh, local and state police responses and the way they carried things out. And now the U.S. Justice Department, as of yesterday, May 29th, now they're going to investigate, and that's the very day that Joe Biden visited Uvalde. And so that's the new development. Um, it's pretty complex. Basically, what it boils down to is there's two main problems, but they're only acknowledging one. The police are under scrutiny for taking the better part of an hour, let's just say, to even enter the building to confront the uh, accused shooter, Salvador Ramos, 18 who is now, we're told, dead because he was shot dead by police. So parents were right across the street. The school happens to be located within eyeshot of several households and a funeral home. So some parents um, and uh, interested onlookers wanted to go inside the school, even unarmed, to try and save the kids because they said they could hear gunshots. They actually kept them out, and in some cases, we're told, tasered these citizens or handcuffed them and used more aggression on the people wanting to get in the school to see what was happening than they did on the apparent assailant. So, uh, at the, but here's the problem, the media, which is coming down hard on the police, reflecting the Justice Department investigation and all that itself, the media itself is still not getting much of its story straight or asking pertinent questions. So it's really kind of a double problem here. I am going to make an effort to stop by Uvalde in the next couple of days. I'm not sure I can pull it off due to some personal matters, but a lot more questions need to be asked is the, the bottom line of this. Um, another thing that's really odd that's still hanging there like low-hanging fruit is the Border Patrol's involvement in this. Initially, we were told that a single Border Patrol agent off-duty who worked for a Border Patrol tactical unit that no one had ever heard of by name happened to go in and take out the accused shooter. Now we're told that an organized Border Patrol team went in and had to get someone to unlock the door to the classroom that the assailant had locked himself into using a key. Why they wouldn't just use their firearms to uh, shoot the door open, I don't know. But the question is, is why the formal or semi-formal involvement of the Border Patrol um, when myriad other police agencies were there? And everybody knows Border Patrol does not get involved if there's not border or immigration or illegal immigration issues that are at hand. So 
the more that the media reports this, the more difficult it is to understand. Uh, another example is that um, we're told that Salvador Ramos, the accused shooter, turned 18 on May 16th, just eight days before the May 24th shooting. Now get this, we're told he bought his first Daniel defense weapon the day after his 18th birthday, which would have been May 17th, and bought his second Daniel Defense AR-15 weapon on May 20th, which was a Friday. Then we're led to believe that he could proficiently use these weapons uh, less than a week before the school shooting, that somehow in that small amount of time, he learned how to use those weapons so well that he entered the building unmolested and kept police away from him for up, let's just say an hour. Where did he get the money to buy $4,500 worth of, of weapons? Those are expensive AR-15s. Much less, when did he have time to develop the skills to that level where he could keep police away or present such a risk that police didn't want to go in and now the police under are under all this criticism? So the media will report the police failing, the Justice Department investigation of the police, which is Texas State Police, local Uvalde police, et cetera, but they won't report these, these strange anomalies and the um, difficult to understand timeline of this whole thing. So, so the plot thickens, you might say, but that's, that's the latest in a nutshell. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. And you've got two uh, slides here. You're recommending, I think, the cut. Is this particular article asking some of the questions that you're talking about? Uh, no, not not about the media's reporting. It's only talking about uh, the police response to the Uvalde shooting being very tardy, uh, keeping parents out, um, apprehending or tasering parents that wanted to go in when they heard shots inside the building, and uh, mentioning this Border Patrol involvement, again, without questioning why the Border Patrol would play first a almost accidental role and now a practically central role in taking out the shooter. There were early reports, you might remember what I reported Thursday, that the shooter may have been an illegal immigrant. And there's no solid evidence that that is a, is a fact, except to say that that was an initial report. Okay. Um, yeah, Sorry, so I'll that... If I could just come Go in ahead. and also Biden has taken the opportunity to visit, which of course uh, produces a nationwide spotlight on it. Yeah, yeah, that was yesterday, Sunday, May 29th. And of course, he's he's there to uh, mourn, help help the community mourn what we're told are 21 victims, 19 fourth graders and two adult teachers or staff. And, you know, he's he's being the comforter in chief right now. Of course, he's insinuating subtly and not so subtly that the problem is purely firearms. Meanwhile, former President Trump was up in Houston speaking to the National Rifle Association annual convention and taking a lot of heat for doing so. So um, uh, much more will come out on this. Right now, we're still untangling this, but the police are under the uh, microscope when both the police and mainstream media should be under the microscope. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for that report, uh, Mark. Okay, well, let's take a break from uh, some very serious and disturbing news, which the UK column has been covering today. And uh, let's bring in Katie Joe. 
Uh, Katie Joe, take us into your realm because we've got lots of really positive and good things happening around the country. We do, we do. Thank you. Uh, I had the absolute pleasure last night of chatting with Richard and Fred, the awesome brothers that make up the band Right Said Fred, best known for their iconic hits, I'm Too Sexy and Deeply Dippy. Um, since forming in 1989, Right Said Fred have gained a fantastic list of achievements. Number one hits in over 70 countries, including three UK number ones and two US number ones. They are multi-platinum award-winning artists whose global sales have reached 30 million. Their music has been featured in over 100 commercials and over 50 TV shows and films. And the brothers have performed with Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger and David Bowie. The list of, their list of awards is pretty impressive too and includes two Ivan novellas for I'm Too Sexy and Deeply Dippy. But they are willing to sacrifice all the fame and fortune in the world and have put their careers and livelihoods in jeopardy by speaking out and sharing their opinions. We all know the story. If you don't share the mainstream news and if you dare to question the nonsense, you are ostracised. This is exactly what they, um, is happening to them right now. Um, only last week they were booked for a US commercial only to be dropped because of their controversial views. Uh, they said most of the time, once people find out who they are dealing with, they lose the job. Uh, but in my eyes, they are absolute stars and huge inspiration, and they put the majority of other artists to shame, really. During our chat, we agreed on many things, such as the corruption in the music industry, the criminal behavior, and massive amount of misinformation from the press. Um, according to the mainstream uh, media, Two weeks after they'd released I'm Too Sexy, um, the press printed that they were multi-millionaires. Um, so, you know, they've, they've been subject to misinformation um, themselves. We spoke about the huge lack of morality in politics, which is front and centre now, and they aren't even trying to hide it. Um, both of them are big fans of UK Column News and have been watching the show since it aired and have followed many other alternative journalists. So when the lockdown happened, and they heard the words build back better coming out of the mouths of numerous leaders from around the world. They knew an alternative agenda was being played out. As they drove past billboards on the motorways saying stay home, save lives, found no open debate anywhere in sight and saw Matt Hancock's spectacular piece of acting on Good Morning Britain. Their own moral compass wouldn't allow them to stay silent and they felt compelled to share the truth and stand up for our freedoms. They have attended many protests and don't like the way the world is heading one bit. But amongst all this madness and uncertainty, they have found a silver lining. Um, before lockdown, they were predominantly writing four on, uh, four on the floor crowd pleasers uh, and songs like God Send, their latest single with a half groove, would have been on the album but never released as a single. So during lockdown, Drake released a version of I'm Too Sexy, and this made the guys think about the direction of their own music. Uh, they couldn't perform live as they haven't been vaccinated. And so they, they were approaching music and writing from a completely different angle. The thought of how, the audience, how is the audience going to dance to this and how, is, how will this go down in a concert wasn't there to mold this single. Love is a godsend is a beautiful message. Uh, godsend is a word I use a lot myself. 
there are many people in my life that are absolute godsends. Uh, it's an incredibly emotive word and a word they said that their mother used to use a lot. They believe that love is one currency we all have and we need to remember that more than anything else uh, right now. The single godsend is available on Spotify, iTunes and Amazon and I would urge anyone to go and download it. I absolutely love this song and I haven't stopped playing it since I listened to it. The tin whistle or the penny whistle as it's also known gives the song this beautiful Celtic traditional vibe and I feel it represents a longing we all have to go back to tradition and back to our, our roots because the speed at which we are moving towards this fourth industrial revolution is really quite uncomfortable and unsettling. And as one of my friends said to me at the weekend, we have got to go back to move forward. And I totally agree. I also think the lyrics, never thought it had come to this, is a thought we've all had over the last two years. Kay uh, Marino created the video and it's fantastic. It captures the isolated lives many people are now living perfectly, with characters engrossed in their mobile phones, with empty heart spaces wandering through cities of devastation. As the song progresses, we see these characters taking the road to love by following Fred and Richard. The scene bursts with colour and as musical notes dance around these heartless characters, we see their empty heart spaces fill with love. You can catch Richard and Fred every Saturday on Second City Radio, 12 till, uh, 10 till 12, uh, where you will be pleased to know that they have free speech and are not censored. On their show, they love playing an eclectic range of songs from around the world and feel it's time that the West took, off, uh, took themselves off their pedestal and realised that they aren't the only ones that make good music. Although saying that, they did say that they play different number one, a different number one record from around the world um, every week. And uh, the, the, when they played China's number one, it was so awful they had to turn it off after 10 seconds. Um, they have a book coming out on the 4th of August called Still Too Sexy, Surviving Right Said Fred, and I would recommend following them on Facebook. Their posts are full of humour and guaranteed to put a smile on your face. So um, let's play a short clip of their latest single, Godsend. Here we go again, my friend. Never thought it'd come to this, though. If the party end, where the hell would we go? Okay, well, we'll leave people to pick up on that themselves. Now, you're also, yeah. um, Katie Joe, you've also been looking at people who've been out and about doing things, and uh, you're homing in on Alice the Journalist here. I am indeed. I, well, I've known Alice for quite a while. I first met Alice when she was filming a documentary on the single family, dear friends of mine and a part of the Hope team. She was filming the home ed community on a trip to some local woods. Uh, we were doing, uh, taking part in the John Muir Award. And um, she, we, we started talking and she was telling me about her passion for sharing 
people's stories from around the country since this pandemic started. Her first episode uh, from, from the Power of the People series was about the ripped gym owners who were constantly harassed and um, treated like criminals uh, by the police during, uh, during the lockdown. Um, I'd love to show a very short clip of that, that very first episode, um, just so you get a sense for her, her documentaries and how powerful they are. Um, if we've got it there, that would be great. Yep. Someone in charge, or we can have to we deal can with talk, this down the police station? We can station. talk here. Okay, what our plan is, is to find the manager on £1,000 and each of the members using the gym £200. Police are outside again. Uh, if people are deciding to do outside exercising two metres apart responsibly, that's completely lawful. Here we go again. The police, Harlow police are here again. We're not open. We are not going to open. Damien, don't let them spray you. Damien, don't let them spray you. We're not open. Please go away and catch some criminals, some thieves, maybe some burglars. Maybe some paedophiles, maybe some rapists. I don't know. So, so, something that's going to help the public. How about helping the public instead of standing outside a gym that's closed? It's been emotional. So that was the first episode she ever did. Um, her third episode was about my gorgeous friend and lyricist to all my parodies, uh, Disco Deb, um, who was arrested for dancing on the beach. And then together we collaborated on the Polly Darton vaccine video. Alice has a gift. She captures moments that many miss. Uh, previous to this pandemic, she hadn't even considered being a filmmaker. It happened completely organically after capturing protests uh, two years ago and talking to people who had really important stories to tell but weren't being heard. Alice felt compelled to give them a platform and so the documentary series Power of the People was born. Her, first, uh, her fourth episode, I think, is the best yet. It is a story that most of you will remember. The story of unconditional love between a grandmother, mother and daughter and the bond between them that no tyrannical government with its nonsensical rules and regulations could break. Tina, an elderly mother, was in a care home and her daughter, uh, Elena, uh, would visit her every day. This became a window visit during the lockdown and Elena could very quickly see her mother deteriorating as she was starved of that physical contact and care from her devoted daughter. One day, Elena and her daughter, Leandra, went to visit their mother, her mother, Tina, and she looked so awful that they spontaneously, in the moment of desperation, took her. They just wanted her to be home and safe with them, but the care home called the police. They were chased, and when the police caught up with them, they arrested Elena and took Tina back to the care home. Uh, this story soon exploded and went worldwide, and luckily for them, a wonderful woman called Sasha uh, Peterson uh, who formerly worked in the social care, um, offered to help them for free to remove their loved one 
her mother from the prison disguised as the care home and returned her back home with them. Uh, now they have all teamed up and created an organisation called the People's Care Watchdog to help other families in similar situations and empower families in the care system. This fourth episode of Power of the People is going to premiere for UK Column viewers right here this Friday evening this week. Um, you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, you can follow Alice the Journalist on Instagram and you can find all her videos on her YouTube channel. So we have a we have a short clip, don't we? No, no, uh, we we actually don't have time for we that. Don't. We we don't. Oh, we, okay. Well, well, as you say, we'll be coming find... that on Friday. Yes. Okay. Okay. And uh, we got more here with uh, um, uprise and shine in Sussex, and you've got a lot of photos of of people <laughs> doing do. some really good things. We probably can't show <laughs> all do. of these, Katie Joe, but give us a taste of people out and about doing things um, to make a difference because this is a very important part of fighting what's going on. It is, it is indeed. We had a crazy busy couple of weeks at Hope. Uh, we hosted our first um, festival, which was uh, the Freedom Network's Uprise and Shine conference, uh, which was brilliant. And I'm so pleased I mentioned it on the show a couple of, uh, about a month ago, because uh, quite a few people came up to me and said, I'm so pleased you mentioned it. I wouldn't have known about it otherwise. Um, and we had amazing speakers, stalls, Mark Devlin played that Saturday evening and, you know, everyone was on the floor. It was wonderful. Uh, so that went brilliantly well. And we do have a music festival coming up, um, which I will speak about uh, nearer the time at the end of July. Um, and that happened. And then this weekend that's just gone, we've had the Alpha team back down. We've had, again, our stage two of our very own DIY SOS. Um, it was project managed again by Danny Glass and Danny Truthfills and Mad Mick were there volunteering and supporting us for the second time. I didn't think they could top what they achieved last time, but they did. And luckily, I have these wonderful pictures from the fantastic photographer, Martin Pope. Uh, Martin is a prestigious photographer who gave his time up again to capture the outstanding achievements these guys make. Uh, this time we had volunteers from as far as Scotland. It's overwhelming, really, to think that complete strangers that have never met us before would drive 10 hours, sleep in a tent and work for us for free uh, for, the, for the HOPE project. And yet every single one of them said they wouldn't miss it for the world. And we already have stage three booked in. Um, this time they built a stage on the back of one of the barns. Uh, last time we had to set up a makeshift stage for the band Victoria to play on. So they saw through it this time that we wouldn't ever have to do that again. They rebuilt the porch that was rotten and torn down in stage one. They started the huge job of leavening out and creating a safe outdoors play area for the babies and toddlers. Matt and Keeley bought us a gorgeous range of fruit trees and bushes for our allotment. Jess cut hair on the Saturday and raised 265 pounds. They cut the grass, which it's, a, it's quite a large plot. So after no mow May, it was quite wild and out of control. Uh, if they weren't painting, digging or building, they were helping with the mammoth task, feeding everyone and washing up afterwards. And none of this would have been possible without the epic Hadrian's Wall 84-mile walk fundraiser that a group of them did, which raised over £2,000. Uh, this gave us the money for the building materials, along with many other donations that were um, given to us that weekend from the volunteers. I honestly have never met such generous and selfless people in my life. They are incredible and there are no words really to describe our gratitude to them for what they have done for us. But if you can see in those pictures there, I mean, my screen's frozen so I can't see what you guys can see, but the piece de resistance 
has to be that obstacle course. It's not quite finished um, as we ran out of materials in time, but as you can see from the photos, what they have built is astonishing. It's absolutely massive, and I have a feeling the kids might have a fight on their hands to uh, get the adults off of it. Um, there was a lot of lovely social time too. We had a roaring bonfire on the Saturday night and celebrated Keely's birthday, and the children from my drama class performed a short adaptation of Animal Farm for them yesterday. Um, the weekend's event um, just kind of give us hope again, I think, this, with acts of kindness and just generosity like this. Um, but we all feel like Hope Sussex is a blueprint. And if we can get this right um, and make it work, then we can spread these community centres around the country. That is the ultimate goal. Um, we also have a fundraiser happening today, right now. Matt Single and two of the older children, Peter and Ford, um, who are only 12 from Hope, are setting out today on their fundraising walk across the South Downs, another English classic that weaves and undulates its way along the uh, southern edge of England. It is exactly 100 miles from Winchester to Eastbourne. They are aiming to complete this walk in seven days. They will be carrying everything they need on their backs and will be wild camping along the way. I would like to wish them a safe and blister-free week. Go on, boys, you can do it. Amazing. Okay, Katie Jo, excellent. And what a contrast to see the enthusiasm and the enjoyment of those people um, doing something uh, productive and also having a good time doing it. Contrast that with the type of people that are driving uh, the world agenda that we've been describing yeah. earlier in the news. So. That's a really productive contrast there. Thank you very much for that. Where does that take us, Mike? To extra. It's, it's going to take us to extra. I think it is. Okay. I think, Katie Joe, we we've lost a little bit of time, so we're going to have to end the news there, but great to end on a positive note. So we're going to say thank you very much to that. Um, we will play out the uh, video later in the week, and uh, we'll be very interested in seeing how people react to the music. So that's great. Okay, well, big thank you to all our viewers and listeners and subscribers and supporters. Uh, as we always say, we can only do what we do with your help and support. And uh, we are delighted to uh, be able to say that with that support, we are now able to expand. So there will be a Thursday news again this week. And uh, we're looking to the future for more UK column productions only possible with your generosity. So thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.